Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Chewing the Gristle podcast with me, your host, Greg Cock, Gregory Cockery, the Gristle Man, if you will. We have extemporaneous conversations with musical friends from all genres, walks of life, and nostril circumferences. Brought to you by our good friends at Wildwood Guitars in beautiful Louisville, Colorado, and Fishman Transducers of beautiful Andover, Massachusetts. Can you dig it? In this particular episode of Chewing the Gristle, we have the one, the only Joe Satriani. Guess what? I know Joe Satriani, and it's pretty damn cool. Tune in for this interview. Actually, you have no choice because you're already here. Come. Today is kind of a surreal day. We have the mighty Joe Satriani visiting us from his beautiful lair in San Francisco. Joe, how the heck are you? I am good. So happy to talk to you today. Well, I'll and tell you what. As, I, as, as we were uh, talking about before, look at that, right? Matching outfits. Come on. Great minds think alike. <laughs> or follically balanced heads think alike. Maybe maybe yeah. one of the two. Happy <laughs> world, and you got to do something about it. Well, you know, I found that as I got older, the uh, the the black T-shirt seemed to mitigate the presence of my uh, Milwaukee goiter a little bit, <laughs> and uh, I've messed around with different cranial raiments, and uh, this is my current iteration. So that's that's been going well. <laughs> yes, we have a, a big pile of things to protect the head, you know, from wind and sun and people throwing things, whatever. You know. This is true. This is true. <laughs> well, you know what's wild is the first time we actually met was backstage at that Experience Hendrix uh, event here in actually beautiful Milwaukee, Wisconsin. But yeah. I remember a couple yeah. of years back, uh, a couple of the guys from Wildwood, uh, I think it was Troy that was telling me, you know, Joe Satriani called here and he was talking about your videos. I was like, wait, what? what? What are you talking about? So I thought they were yanking my chain. And then when I was at the thing and you came up to me like, hey, and you introduced me to your lovely wife and the whole nine yards. Like, this is bizarro. <laughs> <laughs> so it was so wild to make your acquaintance. And what was funny, too, is that is that, uh, you know, right away, the, the sense of humor thing is always is always something that really seems to bond people. You know what I mean? You can tell right away if somebody's just like, you know what? At the end of the doggone day, if you can't laugh about the whole thing, you're in big trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's yeah. Yeah. I, man, I've spent so many hours watching your videos and then finally I usually turn them off because my face hurts from laughing too much. <laughs> and you know, there's, there's part of me, it feels really sad because I go, I can't play that. I, I wish I could play that. Come I on. didn't figure out how to play that. Then I, I go, oh, that's too much work. I'm just going <laughs> to listen to the jokes now. <laughs> and you know, eventually, you know, me and the friends are just sending the, the links to each other going, you got to just check this out. You know, it's just too funny. So <laughs> you are a funny man. You bring laughter to a very serious subject, which is trying to play guitar, which is, you know, it's convoluted. It's difficult. And uh, we try every day. We wake up and we try to play. But, yeah, that sense of humor got to be able to laugh at yourself, you know. Well, you know, especially in in this industry, um, you know, it's uh, sometimes if you didn't, if I didn't have a sense of humor, I think I probably would have gone, shall we say, even more insane many years ago. But uh, it's served me well over the years, just kind of keeping things in perspective, <laughs> if you know what I'm talking about. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So now I'm looking at your lair, too. Yes. This is, uh, you've got an orange guitar, and you know I'm a fan of orange. I don't have my orange guitar sitting there. I've got some other strange colors I'm working with, but um, there's something about playing an orange guitar. I don't know. I love it. I love yeah. it, too. You know, I, it was just one of those things when, um, when I was a kid, someone asked me, what's your favorite color? I just, orange. That was it. And then for, for years, I never had an orange guitar uh, and I always kind of seem to, to gravitate towards like uh, uh, Sonic Blue or Daphne Blue, your, your blues. And uh, and then when we were thinking about doing different colors for my, my Reverend guitar, I was like, boy, an orange would really be cool. And then when I saw it, I was like, oh, my God, that's glorious. And I'm like, well, we need a name for the color of orange. And I said, Cockwork Orange. That seems to work. <laughs> <laughs> and then off to the races we went. And um 
I love I, I love playing the orange guitar. And then, of course, the orange room. We moved into this house, and we moved into this house about four years ago, and it had the weirdest kind of wallpaper and colors in this house. And so we we repainted everything. And this is kind of a little back sunroom in the back of the house. And we thought orange is good. And so it started off where actually on the side of the house or side of the room where I'm in, this was my kind of my wife's lair and I was on the other side. And then when when the covid collapse took place, my wife took over the attic and then my son and I took over this lair as our as our, uh, shall we say, music hovel. Yes. uh, So now I got the orange guitar in the orange room and my son is always gets a kick out of it because no matter where he goes he, he he'll be playing a gig someplace with somebody's like dude tell me about the orange room it's like well it's actually kind of a small room at the back of our house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you'll, you'll have to make up some stories about the what happens yes, in the orange room indeed <laughs> you know years ago this is kind of a funny story i think it's funny um i was going through a guitar magazine of some sort and you did this article um and you you know a lot i've never really been a very good student or someone that reads a magazine from you know uh back to front and all points in between and learns all the lessons and so on and so forth i've you know probably some variation of attention deficit or whatnot and you know so i'm going through and i see oh joe satrani's got this article, and it was on um Stacked fourth voicings uh, in a, uh, I think it was a Dorian scale. And I got to tell you, Joe, I have used that. I wrote a song immediately using using that. It was a tune of mine called Foolish Mortal. I've played ever since then. And I have utilized that as kind of chord soloing fodder uh, and over all the different modes. And I teach it all the time, too. I was like, I got this from Joe Satriani. So I was curious. I mean, obviously, you know, when you were early on and, and you took lessons from some kind of, um, you know, really kind of established old jazz cats, right? So was it was it one of the things where you went through standards or were you trying to apply uh, your, of course, you know, we could talk forever about our mutual love of one Jimi Hendrix, but were, at your mindset when you were taking lessons back then, were you like, I really want to be a jazz guitar player or did you just really want to go, how can I know what I'm doing more so so I can develop my own voice in more of kind of a, uh, a rock, but, you know, infused with these other influences but what was, what was your kind of your mindset back then if you will yeah i you know um the the stacked force things is an interesting story because it ties together i was learning starting out as a self-taught guy just playing along with records right playing with friends stealing ideas people would write stuff down on loose leaf paper at school and give it to me i'd take it home like it was you know the part of my grimoire that I was slowly piecing together about how to play. Um, I was, and then I started taking music theory lessons uh, at Car Place High School. We had just this brilliant young Juilliard graduate who got stuck in this teeny little town teaching a bunch of long-haired Black Sabbath nutcases like me. <laughs> and uh, uh, But, you know, we were hungry for knowledge. And so he was teaching us modes. And uh, back then you had to be tested by the state of New York. It was all very official. So we oh. got a good ed- education there. And then as I was getting uh, getting out of high school uh, and and heading towards college, I did wind up taking a few lessons from Lenny Tristano uh, um, for a few months. But uh, because he was blind, show you anything, it was more, um, uh, you know, more like getting taught by Yoda or something like that. Right. You know, I mean, he didn't. Hand out leaflets and things like that. So, um, in that period there, I was grabbing stuff from anywhere. I, I knew I was just a, a rock kid. I wasn't going to become a jazzer, but I loved bebop. I loved jazz. I loved blues. So I would be at home practicing. I would try to absorb all of it. And I had this book by Joe Pass called Joe Pass Chords, an amazing book. It was the first chord book I ever saw that didn't have chord names. And, and his idea or his publisher's or his editor's idea was just present chords in a key and say for C major, you know, uh, this is a bit distorted now, I think. Well, you can use all of these chords and they may work. Right. Or, or they may not work. And you're to decide, you know, how that's going to work. And I thought, well, this is really brilliant because I've been playing every chord 
in every chord book I had every day, like as a thing, you know, just to learn first position chords, fifth string roots, sixth string root bar chords. But then I started thinking like, wow, these chords, there's no really, uh, it's not like there's a root and then everything else is on top, like typical rock chords. So I started thinking, well, what I'm learning from this guy, Bill Westcott in high school is that every note of a scale is harmonized with all the other notes in that scale. Right. If you want to stay in that scale's key. Right. And that's what it's all about. So you might as well learn every chord off of every note in every mode. Of course, that's, you know, you're 16. You're like, I ain't doing that. Right. You know? exactly. <laughs> so, but somehow I got around to doing that. And when I put together, you know, the idea that Joe Pass was talking about, these little four note chord fragments, and you see C major for two bars, you know, play eight of these fragments. Maybe they'll work. Use your ear. I'm thinking about what Bill had said about harmonizing every note and every scale. And then I run into uh, Lenny Tristano, who really taught me what practicing was all about. What, know, what, how you had to look at yourself and say, do I know that or do I not know that? Can I do that or can I not do that? So, and that allowed you to say, okay, this is where I suck. This is where I need to work. And I should know it. And and his idea was when you know it, then you can improvise. If you don't know it, you're just flailing away, repeating stuff that you've heard before. And he hated that. He, to him, that was not improvisation. You could only improvise once you knew everything. You didn't think about it. You were completely non-judgmental as you improvise, you know. Right. So I put all these things together and I thought, okay, I am going to harmonize uh, on every everywhere and because he had me doing like lenny would say like okay i need uh, melodic minor harmonized in seconds thirds and fourths in every key off of every string combination right that, that was one part of one week's lesson it was just a monumental amount of work for a teenage kid you know and uh and so but it, it what it taught me was to look at the guitar in a different way and then to start to put together chords the way uh, other instrumentalists would, like a piano player, obviously, it's all laid out. It goes in one direction, right. not like the guitar, which is, you know, going up and down and left and right. And it's very easy to see all your possibilities. You know, you can basically just lean your forearm, uh, you know, on the keys and you got yourself some harmony. Can't really do that on the guitar very easily. But I could, let me see if I can get a yeah, there's a clean sound of some <laughs> sort. Yeah. And that's just, that's a staying in key, you know what I mean? So, uh, and then when you think, well, you know, that's just with, if your audience is hearing E, well, then they're hearing Dorian, right? Right. But if they're hearing some other bass note, then they're hearing some other mode, and then, of course, you know, Right. And you realize that the heavens open up and the light shines down and you hear angels singing. Yeah. And the guy next to you goes, what's the matter with you? You know, and you, you can't explain it to him. <laughs> but yes. And then you start moving him around and you realize I, I could be like, you know, McCoy Tyner. Easy. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway. Yeah. That, that was a, uh, that was a huge, uh, mind opener for me back in the day and I've I've utilized it ever since so thank you very much for that <laughs> good. good we will thank all teachers of mine they must have thought I was like just so, some sort of uh, you know simian you know heavy metal kid or something when they would try to explain it to me and they probably saw my eyes all crossed I'd like what you can harmonize every note in a scale and you know yeah, I remember those early days when people would be explaining modes. It'd just be like my eyes would glass over, you know, there'd be a little bit of saliva drooling down. And it's, it was, it's, you know, and now when I explain it, I'm like, why can't they get this? Because <laughs> they're looking at me the way I looked at my teacher back in the day. But it, it's like one of those things where, you know, I was describing this to someone the other day. There's like this, this weird gap that exists between the brain of someone that likes to play along with records and really get into the nuances of the grit between different vibratos. Say, listen to Hendrix versus, a, you know, Creamy or a Clapton or mess around with some Jimmy Page stuff or whatever the case may be versus someone who's like, 
I've got to learn the standard. I'm going to learn how to play a chord melody over it, and I'm going to know how to play over the changes. It's just something has to happen at some point for that other side, and, and vice versa. You know what I mean? It's like you, you hear guys that are great jazz players, and they're like, well, you know, anyone can, you know, if you know how to play jazz, you can play anything. Well, your ear is is obviously can digest all that stuff, but then when they do it, it sounds not always, there are the exceptions, but a lot of times it's it's really square because the brain doesn't reconcile, recon, uh, reconcile itself to that. You know what I mean? It's just yeah. kind of bizarre. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> when I was in high school and I was learning all these things, I had a uh, book, and of course there's a lot of hanging out, so there's always friends in the room and you're playing music and stuff like that. And uh, I remember from some uh, little party in the room, we decided... And I had to be reminded what, what my true nature was. And so the guys opened up my book. They went like, you know, 100 pages deep in the creative book. And they wrote, uh, remember to always sound like, you know, a like rock guitar player. It was just like, it was just like, remember, don't lose yourself down the jazz rabbit hole or something like that. And we just laughed about it. And of course, I didn't think about it. And then six months later, you know, I'm flipping the pages, writing down strange obtuse music ideas and there's that note to myself remember you know your true nature you like distortion you like to make noises play with your teeth you know right. get down on your knees and it's like that's right that's who i am all this other stuff is good but i'm just a rock and roll kid you know and and it's a it's it's kind of like what you were saying is, is you have to remind yourself sometimes that you know the the true nature uh, of yourself, I think is the is the the deepest well with the most amount of good stuff in, and that people really want to experience. They, we, our job is to play music for people, lift people's spirits up, and and to to accompany them with our music through all the stages of life. But you can't do that if you're faking it. I, I right. truly believe it. I mean, it's just terrible. And so, yeah, when when you hear someone who really is a jazzer and he's trying to play rock, it's not the same. And if you got a rocker and, and all of a sudden he starts getting brainy, you can tell, like, he worked that one out one day. <laughs> and, exactly. and he said, hey, look at this. I, I can do Lydian dominant. Check this out, you know. So. <laughs> well, it, it's amazing because, you know, I one of the things that I um, loved about Hendrix's playing so much is that he seemed – he seemed to earball changes instinctively. You know what I mean? He just, he just, you know, when things would get weird, it's like you, uh, like in different versions of uh, Little Wing or so on and so forth. Although he wasn't formally trained, it's like he he heard the changes and but did so in just in in his way. I mean, just talk a little bit about what Hendrix meant to you in in terms of uh, how it shaped you not only as a guitar player but as a composer and that kind of stuff. Because for me, it always people ask me, "Who's your favorite guitar player?" I always say Hendrix, or "Who's your main influ influence?" I always say Hendrix because it's just. I mean, even to this day, I listen to it and I get something new out of it, uh, which is weird because I mean, you know, I'm 54 now and he died when he was 27. You think I? You think I'd be over it? You know, but it's. <laughs> <laughs> no. Wow, you know, um, I, I almost want to break it down into levels. Uh, you know, I mean, because we're both musicians, we can speak in a deeper sense about Hendrix and his musicianship. Um, you know, there's the obvious thing, which is, well, I heard him when I was a kid. I had no idea about the architecture of music at all. I just right. loved music. Even though I was a drummer at the time, I, I still was basically an unformed human being. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the music came over me. It, it sort of changed my DNA instantly. I loved it. I didn't know why. I didn't intellectualize. I was just a little kid, and I thought, this is the greatest noise I've ever heard in my life, whoever this guy is. Then I saw the picture, and I said, well, these three guys here are the coolest three guys I've ever seen in my right. life. They, they don't look like all the grown-ups on my street, so therefore <laughs> they are the coolest people. <laughs> In the planet, you know? Right. And so, I mean, I, hook, line, and sinker, that was the end of that. And then, as I started to play guitar years later, I realized the enormous difference between the way Hendrix played and the way other people played. And uh, he, he had that sort of uh, virtuoso 
um, he came off as a virtuoso, but yet you could not hear or detect any element of that had gone on. It's so, for some reason, like you hear other people play at the time. I remember there's a lot of fusion going on right. and the difference between fusion solos and exercises were, you know, there was, they were pretty damn close. You know, mm-hmm. there was a lot of demonstration going on in, in certain styles of music where people would demonstrate their technical prowess. I never heard Hendrix do that. He just right. never played a scale and exercise. He just never did any of that. And right. yet he created music that everybody responded to as legitimate music. I mean, this is it's actually a hard thing to do, to be taken seriously as a legitimate musician, someone who can create music that you love to listen to, dance to, do all sorts of crazy things to. It's not really about demonstrations. And I mean, you know what it's like. You come across them all the time. There are some folks are really well studied, good musicians, good people, and they're really good at demonstrating when it comes to like moving your soul or your heart. There's it's not their thing. Right. Then there are other people who can barely get around the guitar and yet they are masters at moving people with their musical expression. And it's, I, I haven't figured out how to even talk about it, let alone how I would teach it or, or try to grapple with it myself. I do know though that um, it's, for me personally, it's pointless to try to prepare a hundred percent and think to myself, like I've practiced and therefore I will achieve, you know, right. It never works out that way for me. That's because when I walk out on stage, I'm kind of like freaking out right until that first step on the stage. And then I'm somebody else. Somehow something else takes over and I, I just get into improvising. But um, I can't count on my practicing to get through the gig because I'm just not that kind of person. Right? So, but again, Jimmy would play. And as you said, he'd navigate through changes, but not like. He's, you know, he studied Bird or Coltrane or something like that. You don't hear any of those licks. Right. You just don't hear it. Even when he was saying, like, I'm just going to play you some buddy guy right now, he still <clears throat> didn't completely, you know, copy buddy style. Right. It somehow just sound like he, it was like a new thought, like, hey, I got an idea. Why don't I just play some buddy guy for you guys? Never did it before. Here it goes. <laughs> right. And then, you know, pure magic, you know, uh, and then, you know, I mean, we could talk for hours about the fact that he he was using a Stratocaster, none of this locking tuner stuff. <laughs> Spoil, so we are spoiled kids with all this stuff here. <laughs> um, you know, no no master volumes, and uh, you can't see over there. Axe effects three right. Signature mark, 12 modes and four channels. I mean, really, do I need all that? I don't know. Hendrix had a Stratocaster. No tuners. Right. right? It was all it was all this. Right. And, uh, it, you know, maybe fuzz face or something like that. He's in two or three marshals. One just like that back there, you know, 1969, 100 white head. Those Delicious. things are beasts. Oh, yeah. You know, when you play it, you find out, like, if there's magic in your fingers right away right. when you plug into one of those, uh, it tells you right away. It uh, kind of puts you in your place <laughs> really in a very loud way too. Yes. You know? And that's every time I hear machine gun, I just go like, it's amazing. I, I there's a, I've got a really huge photograph, uh, in the next room of the sound check from the Fillmore East, the night that the, uh, the band of gypsies uh, recorded and did those those four shows, and it, it rim is up behind them, so it's all ladders and lights. There's stools. There's like two two monitors. Drum right. set is teeny right. There's like dual showmans and Marshall heads everywhere, all with funny cables going into all the inputs, all wired up together. But it's just three guys. It's right. the afternoon. They've showed up to see if they can play <laughs> right and i go wow that that little setup over there bare bones old school as old school can get and they made and they turned out machine gun right holy crap i mean oh my god so it kind of puts you in your place but i mean he was uh he was such a master 
and I, you know, I, I can't imagine what it was like. Just, you know, what was going on in his brain? What, why did he think he could do that? It's, I'm so happy he thought he could. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's it's bizarre. I mean, I, you know, depending on how. Um, vigilant uh, the legal representatives of the uh, Hendricks world are, but every now and again, and right now we're kind of currently in a situation where on YouTube, uh, there's a bunch of people uploading some really good bootlegs and um, I'm a sucker for it. I listen to them all the time and I'm always fascinated. Of course, you see other pictures of that era where it's like um, he's going through the crowd holding his you know with the with the fuzz face and the way you know it's like they're, he's walking up and the guitars are hanging you know the other spare is just kind of leaning up against the the amp and so on and so forth and they always would start off the show we're like hold on a second uh we're gonna tune up for a little bit just hang tight it's like you know never mind tuning up backstage or a roadie handing him a it's just it yeah. just it was like the wild west and then they just start and you never know what was going to happen? But to this day, I'm just I'm just such a sucker for it. But when I saw your set at the Experience Hendrix thing, I I thought it was awesome. You know, I I really enjoyed the, oh, the, thank the you. I don't live today thing when you went on that whammy bar rampage. It just it was uh, it was definitely interstellar. And uh, you, you know, it's it's an interesting thing. I mean, I'm you know I did not grow up uh, listening to. Um, uh, to metal for the most part. Uh, I mean, I, I had like the first couple Van Halen records, but for whatever reason, it's like, I never learned eruption. I thought, you know what? My buddy's got that stuff taken care of. I, I, I was more kind of, I guess I kind of regressed more and was just really into like the blue stuff and, and stuff that kind of fed into like, why did Hendrix get to where he was at? And why did cream, you know, how did Clapton get there? So I kind of went back there and then I thought, well, if you could take that stuff and go a little bit farther down the road, maybe, maybe that's what I'll do. And so I was kind of more in that world. Um, and, and so I wasn't all that much into, um, you know, more of the hard rock guitar players and so on and so forth. But the thing I always noticed about your playing is that it's you as much as you had developed all these like obviously all the modern techniques from legato stuff and, you know, tapping and, you know, sweeps and all that other kind of stuff, which is, you know, you perform magnificently. But you never forgot about the intrinsic blues phrasing and 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 rocking the pocket. I mean, even when I was listening to uh, some of your stuff this morning as I was on my walk, and it's like, even when you're doing like the shred stuff, it's got a pocket. It's you know what I mean. It's just there's there's no like random schwedling. It's it's it, there's intention and there's a and it's conversant. There's a conversation going on where it all relates. And I, I'm just wondering, how, how did you get to that point? I mean, I, when you listened to the Squares record, which you were very kind to send me a while back, and I enjoyed that immensely. But even then, I mean, your tone and your touch, it was like, obviously, you know, it wasn't like a light switched. I mean, you were already very, you know, to the point where you could have easily transitioned to an instrumental guitar thing at that point in time, as far as your technique and tone and so on were, were, were concerned. But how did you get into this point where it's like, I'm going to create this you know, basically instrumental guitar pop with this informed technique and so on and so forth to make this, you know, re it's it's pocket pop music. You know what I mean? I mean, that's the way I look yeah. at it. Is that the way you look at it? I, I think uh, because of when I was born and what I grew up listening to that I just seek that out. You know, I just, I it, it, it's, it sounds wrong to me if I'm not hearing it, if I'm, you know, I'm... I, I don't, you know, I, I don't approach things from a technical point of view. I always approach them from a compositional point of view. And it always exposes something that I can't do. And I go, okay, is it worth it? Does this song really need me to figure this new technique out? And if the answer is yes, then I go about where I teach myself how to play. Uh, you mentioned sweeping, and I, I got to tell you I remember having a conversation with one of the guys at the Ibanez custom shop many years ago, and he brought that up. He just suddenly, you know, talking this, that, and he goes, and of course, you know, all of your sweeping technique. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he said, you know, this, this sweep thing that everyone's, you know, copied that you're doing. And I'm like, help me out here. Like, what song? <laughs> what are you talking about? And he had to tell me what people thought about what I had done. And, and I had to laugh because 
you know, as, as I said before, it was really a product of me trying to figure out, like, I hear the sound in my head. Wouldn't it be great if the guitar could mm, do that right. kind of a thing? And then I go to play it and I go, well, I can't pick that fast. You know, it's like, how am I going to do that? And I just sit there and fool around. And then I arrive at a spot and I go, oh, that's interesting. Okay, I'll practice that. And then when I get, I'll tell the engineer, I got some stupid little thing I got to try here. It's going to take an hour, you know, <laughs> whatever. Right. And we just sit there and we just wonder, like, is that the way it's supposed to sound? Okay, great. And, you know, we would construct things, but always about, uh, the composition and then it wouldn't wind up unless it was, you know, best I could do, or it, we did achieve that sort of thing you call, which is to keep it in the pocket, to keep it really listenable. I never wanted it to be a demonstration, uh, at the risk of being out of pocket. You know what I mean? Right. And, and, uh, so, but my upbringing, you know, I mean, as the youngest of five kids, so, all my siblings listened to early rock and roll, blues. There's lots of jazz in the house because my parents, that, that was their generation's music. Um, lots of soul music, Motown music. So there's James Brown, there's Montgomery. Uh, you know, there's everything you can imagine, but it's all in the pocket. And that's what I grew up listening to, just trying to like, get the approval of my cool siblings. You know, it's, they were the coolest people. So I just realized, wow, this is... When I would sit in the floor in the corner and watch my older sisters have uh, dance parties and they'd be dancing to Motown music with all their friends, I'd, I'd say, oh, this is what moves people. They right. hear this thing and they all get up and they and magic happens, you know. And, and I noticed my parents the same way, different kind of music, but they would lean towards a certain kind of player and and – and and it's because I could see they're they're recognizing that thing that we would call pocket as musicians, and uh, so I thought, okay, that that's something that's got to be there. And then I just every time I was wound up in a band that I stuck with, it was because like-minded musicians, and we, we would help each other remind each other songs. It's kind of like at rehearsal where you know your your, your friend says, you know, you're kind of pushing it there when you get to the bridge or something like that, and you go, right. oh, sorry, you know. And you got to figure out ways to remind yourself as you're concentrating on your technique that nobody hears what's going on in here. <laughs> right. They only hear what's coming out of here. Right. So it's a very important thing to get out of that idea of I am now going to demonstrate to you a technique. And nobody's interested in that right. unless right, you're right. giving a lesson, you know. Right. So, but our audience, our collective audience out there, normal people like listening to music, uh, they are not interested in all the stuff that we're working on. It's They're just like, okay, that's your department. Could you please just make some great music, you know? Right. So we have, we'll always have to focus on that. Where, you know, our whole point is to make beautiful, great music for people. Right. And I can dig it. <laughs> yeah, well, Hendrix, that was Hendrix, right? I mean, right. it's just... He was never, never like, was demonstrating. He was never, uh, it was never didactic. It was never methodical. It was just like, it's just like he just thought of it. And yet he somehow pulled it off. And, you know, you mentioned that Hendrix gig. Isn't that the scariest thing when you got to play a Hendrix song in front of people who've known the music for 60 years? Oh, absolutely. And at some point you go, I'm not Hendrix. Never going to play it like him, so I might as well play it like me. Right. <laughs> well, well you, you did. It. it was magnificent. <laughs> well, you know, I, one of the things that I was kind of <clears throat> uh, I was getting at from from the point of view is it seems to me that uh, not everyone, but it's like you've still given the attention to the greasy, bluesy rock licks um, and that stuff, as I well know. It has to be recalibrated relatively often to keep the grease coagulated. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, and I'm just wondering, do you like to play along with records still? I still love playing along with records. I mean, it, do you kind of go back to the well a little bit to some initial influences or particular things like, you know what, I need to kind of get my, you know, tweak my my vibratos and bends and stuff a little bit. I think I'm going to listen to X, Y, and Z. Is there anything like yes. that? Yes. I love doing that. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, at the beginning of the year, obviously I spend just hours every day playing with my catalog because we were just like a week away from going to Europe and doing the, right. uh, starting off the shape-shifting tour. Um, but when I'm not doing that, when I'm at, at home and I'm writing and just enjoying being off the road, I do like to, let's say, put down the chrome guitar and I'll pick up a Telecaster and I'll put on like clapped in the cradle you know and uh-huh. this is a br- all every musician on it is brilliant and they're all greasy on every single track pretty much and you can kind of i can just forget myself and play the guitar you know italy which is so as you know is really hard to play and uh, no bells and whistles on on telly and just sit there and be somebody else and listen to your vibrato and listen to how you bend and and see if the the instrument changes the way you play or the way you feel about certain notes or riffs. Um, uh, just sort of enjoy the fact that other musicians play so differently, you know, than yourself. Um, so I do like to do that. Um, I think I spend more time playing with my weird backing tracks that I make uh-huh. notes for, to help me focus on certain things. Um, I, you know, one thing I noticed that as I, as I've been getting older is that it's really one of the things that I used to, which is to make sure that you, you know, arch your fingers and, and really position the string under the best possible spot on the, um, on your fingertips is that it's getting harder and harder. Ah. <laughs> as my keeps saying, lay on the couch and watch TV. That's like, <laughs> I keep hearing that. And <laughs> Then the other part says, you need to practice, old man, you know. So <laughs> then I noticed that, you know, one of those things, it, it gets to be uh, harder to work on, like harder to, to wake up. You know, when I was 20, it was like, it took like so much energy just to get myself to calm down. That was the thing that always got in my way. Too much energy, right, too much sure. energy expended on the fretboard, you know. And uh, so now as as things move on, things change. So when I go to, let's say, play to Eric Clapton record or something like that, I start to realize, well, it's different than it was, let's say, to go because my hands are different, you know. Right. Um, I have more cultured hands. <laughs> I could say older hands, or I could say more experienced hands. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, I, and I start to go, wow, I'm learning something today because, you know, uh, I'm about 10 years older than you and, and every year's a new thing. Uh, you know, every month is a new challenge when you're dealing with, uh, uh, a, a, a physical, um, uh, thing that you're doing that requires like so much attention and detail to movement and expenditure of energy and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so playing with those other records has really helped me forget about, let's say, the fact that I have to play mystical potato head groove thing tomorrow night or something right. like that, but it's a more, uh, it, it helps you focus on a broader aspect of your technique. We interrupt this regularly scheduled gristle infested conversation to give a special shout out to our friends at Fishman transducers, makers of the Greg Koch signature fluence gristle tone pickup set. Can you dig that? And our friends at Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, bringing the heat in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains. Now, I, I realized that there are things that, let's say, Hendrix did that were like world creating, you know, like a um, um, machine gun. It's just an entire universe, a world of guitar playing. You just sit there and study that for the rest of your life. It covers all sorts of ground. Then you've got guys like Jeff Beck who can come in and for eight bars, just make you go, what the hell was that? Like, how does anyone even think that that's going to be a guitar part? And then all of a sudden it's as big as the grand Canyon and you go, Oh my God, the guy's a genius. Right. And then you got Clapton who somehow can, can play a solo for like, you know, 800 bars and he never crashes and burns. Right. You know, he's not like Jeff Beck, like, I'm allowed to crash right now because of what I just did. You see what I just did? Like, so I'm just going to, like, stop for a second, you know? So, but it's not like, I never see that or hear that clap is playing. He says, I'm going to start here. I'm going to keep you interested all the way through here. I am never going to mess up. 
I'm, I'm just never, ever going to mess up. And then he finishes and he goes back to singing and you're like, oh my God, yeah. that, to me, that's amazing. So that's one of the things like when I'm playing along with From the Cradle, I'm thinking, this guy recorded this live, you right. know? They set up and they played this thing live, and it sounds like it. You know, you can hear him step up to the mic and get too close, and and then play. And uh, Andy Fairweather Lowe, who, who played on that record, was telling me that it was, you know, the the takes that they had, the outtakes were even more amazing. But he had to figure, Clapton had to figure out what's the criteria for a good take over all the other good takes, and it turned out to be the solo. So if he got through the solo and he thought it was really cool then that would be the take they would keep. Even though there may have been a take where the, the you know, the band was more in the pocket or the vocals were better. He, the guitar solo comes first, you know. And I just right. thought that was really cool that he made that decision because you have to when yes. you're making a record. You, you just have to make decisions. But, I, you know, uh, and I learned that. Every time I put on that record, I just, I go, wow, okay, he did this live. You know, he knows how to play guitar. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. I've always been a uh, huge. Well, I, it stemmed back. I'm I'm actually the youngest of seven kids. So, uh, and there were five girls. My brother was the oldest, and I was the youngest. And there were five girls in between. So I had to room with my brother, much to his chagrin, I'm sure. And he was 14 years older than I. And so I got exposed to all the music he listened to. And there was something about, you know, when you're eight year old or so and you come running in your room with your buddies, you're playing guns or whatever around the house. And there's your brother sitting in front of the stereo, you know, with his legs crossed, listening to Cream. And I'm like, what's that sound? He's like, this is the greatest power trio in the history of man. Eric Clapton, Jack Bruce and Ginger. But you're like, whoa, you know, and, and just from there on in, I mean, I never get tired of, um, you know, I like all of Clapton's eras, but I think like like most people, like the Cream era, uh, up through Derek and the Dominoes is really my favorite, although I still own all the other stuff and I'm a fan of that as well. But it's interesting because it never gets old. It's like, you know, especially like in Cream, I know he would bemoan the fact of, oh, you know, back then I was just playing too much and repeating stuff. It's like, yeah, but you, you said new things every time that you use those words. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, it's like, like the other day I'm driving in the car and I got my, my phone on shuffle and that live cream volume two version of stepping out comes on. And I'm just like, Oh my God, this is just the greatest stuff. <laughs> I'd never get tired of listening to it. So yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a weird thing. And you wonder how much of that is just, you know, our first listening to it back then and that kind of childhood fascination or is it just really that good <laughs> you know what i mean oh, yeah yeah well nothing can uh replace the mo you know that moment when you hear music it, it, you know that i mean it's all about that i know scientists say that you know from age like 10 to 14 that's it whatever music you like during that age period, that that's what you're going to take through for the rest of your life, you know. Interesting. And and that has to do with you know hormones and brain development and everything. And um, so that's you know all of that is cool, and it's important to note that that uh, again it goes back to the idea that we're it's really not about demonstration because when you're at that age, you, like you, the story you told, you're eight years old, and you walk in, you're watching your brother having a moment with a cream record. Uh, it didn't cross your mind that maybe Clapton could have used his other fingers right. for that one. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why didn't he use his third finger? Come on. So, I mean, it, it just, again, it reminds you as a musician, it's really about the music. I mean, it sounds trite, but uh, how often do musicians forget that? And they go up there and they bring all that baggage with them on stage and they're like, I practice this and I'm going to show it to you, you know? Right, exactly. <laughs> like, it doesn't work. And the other side of that is it, it, it kind of goes back to a, co a collection of things that Warhol was saying once when they were asking him about art and, 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 uh, you know, I'm paraphrasing him saying, you know, don't listen to what other people think, just go while they're arguing about whether what you've done is good or not, just keep making more. Right. right. So in the same way, we don't know the effect of our music on people. You have no idea the state of mind somebody is in, what what they're if they're in the exaltation, if they're in the saddest spot in their life, and your song comes on, and it means something to them, you know. 
Right. And it's got, they're not thinking, they're not rating us. You know what I mean? Right. They're just sitting there, a human being, they need music to, to be with them. And there it is. There's this song and it'll, it stays with them like that. And that something that musicians again, need to respect and understand and, and grapple with that. That's what we're doing. You know, that's, that's how people use us, so to speak. You know what I mean? Right. Like if we, if we made picks, right. We would be all about listening to our customers. What do they want? You know, what are we doing wrong with this pick that they, they don't like and how do we make it better? You know? Right. So because it's art, of course, we don't want to just cater to the whim. They know what they like, but they don't want to be asked to design the, the music. You know what I mean? Right. So, they're, they're expecting us to just sort of surprise them all the time with the right thing, the right mood at the right time. You know, uh, this fascinates me, you know, and that's yeah. why I'm sitting here in this room. I write music, I record demos, and then I sit back and I go, okay, that might be the best. That might be the worst thing I've ever written, but it's not for me to decide. And like um, on the other side of the door is this big board and on it is 12 songs that I've written for my live band because I decided we do we would record two albums this year while we're all stuck at home. And the instrumentals that I wrote for the for album number one are so different. But I didn't discriminate. I didn't say, like, how's that going to fit in, you know, after Summer Song or Flying in a Blue Dream or something like that. I just right. said, this, this is who I am. This is what I wrote. Uh, and I'm just going to give it to the guys and see what they think. And everyone is reacting the same way remotely. They're adding their tracks and we're, we're slowly building, uh, this album. And, uh, every time someone comes into this room and they listen to a track, I can tell that they're reacting. And, and, and again, it, it illustrates to me that even though I'm supposed to practice, Ultimately, I don't want anybody to hear that. I don't want them to be reminded of any of my practicing, of any of my issues with fingertips or sure. <laughs> or, or you know master volumes or signal chain or whatever. You know, uh, I just want them to hear the music and be touched by it. You know. Well, I'll tell you what. I uh, last night I listened uh, through uh, Shapeshifter from top to bottom, and uh, it's it's awesome. And it, what, what was particular, you know, I mean, this is kind of a stupid, weird question, but um, it's very visual music. You know what I mean? And I guess all music is to an extent, but it's like I was having, it's like every tune put me in a certain place. And sometimes I'd go to a certain place and then just the way that, you know, it was mixed, you know, there's just, it's like, I've, you can get amongst it. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like, oh, this little thing is chirping over here and this is there. Oh, here comes this guitar over here. You know what I mean? It was just, it was a... Uh, it was a cool experience to listen to and be transported someplace. But at the same time, when I got done with it, I was like, well, how hard must it be? I mean, you've, you know, I mean, let's be honest, you're um, probably the most successful instrumental guitarist in the history of man or beast. And, beast. And, and you get to the point where it's like, what motivates you to make another record? And how do you make another record where it's still, it's respectful of what you've done in the past, uh, but is not, pimping what you've done in the past, but is still fresh and still moving forward. Uh, I guess, you know, in the previous things we've been talking about, it kind of explains why, but I mean, it's, it's just, um, I, I, let's just say I'm a fan. I mean, it, it was, Thank it's you. an awesome record and, and to keep motivated at this point in your career. I mean, what, what keeps you motivated? What are your, your goals for the, um, for the future, or is it just about, look, I just do what's in the moment, I like to create music, and or, or are you systematical of, okay, I'm gonna do X, Y, and Z, and for the next period of time, this is what I wanna get done? Because you've done, let's be honest, you've done it all. You've played with iconic stars, you yourself are about as iconic as it gets as, a, um, as an artist in your genre. What's next? What, what keeps you um, motivated, maintained, or do you just wanna keep on yeah, that looks good in the camera. I like that. Pow, pow. pow. Like, it's 3D, right? We're streaming in 3D? That's good. <laughs> uh, I, I can't help it. I just have to write music. I have to play music for people. I have no explanation for it, no excuse. I do know that it's just something that I have to do. It's like with drawing and painting, 
uh, I just have to do it. So I don't argue with that impulse. Um, it's important to note that you know your your questions are really well aimed at at the uh, at the situation I find myself in just about every two years. Because I don't notice it myself, but people come at me like that. Journalists always ask, no matter how recent you've delivered something brand new, they always want to know what's next, you know. And uh, I, I find it very interesting, uh, but it also is a little you know, into, into my psyche, which is it is true that once I finish a record, I feel compelled to go in the other direction. If I just walked off a of right field, I want to go to left field right away. I just want something different. So I know that's just part of my nature. But if we step back and we go, well, how, you know, how does that get you from the beginning of a album idea all the way to being in the studio and delivering, right? So I'm signed to Sony Legacy. So we have a schedule, we have a budget, we have a really talented team of people who are just waiting to help me anytime I need some help putting stuff together. In this particular case, I thought, okay, I need to pull the rug out. You know, I mean, that's how you get yourself to play differently. You pick up the other guitar, you plug into the other amp, you get rid of the familiar things that would sort of lead you towards playing the same riffs, writing the same kinds of songs. And you just say, okay, I'm going to put myself in an environment where I just have to react to what's happening around me. So, couple of things happened that were really funny. I got this text from Kenny because we were on the road last year uh, with the experience Hendrix. And he was talking about the set list. And then he just said, oh, by the way, just left Jim Scott's place, uh, Pliers in Valencia. What a great guy, amazing engineer, what a great guy. And then he went on texting about, you know, the upcoming uh, leg of the tour. And I thought to myself, you know, Jim Scott, why would he ever do a Joe Satriani record, you know? And I thought, I should just call the guy out. And, you know, I know he's like, you know, Tom Petty and Rage Against the Machine and all this stuff. And he's just got, he's had so many number one records and, and Grammys and everything. And I thought, but maybe he's just waiting for me to call. Yeah. <laughs> he's sitting there going, when's Joe going to call me, you know? <laughs> so anyway, uh, you know, a couple of weeks later, uh, Rubina and I are down there. We're visiting his studio, which is like a wonderland. It's just a crazy looking place, warehouse studio. And Jim is such a, a sweet guy. And I think he really understood what I was looking for. Cause I said, look, I got these songs. Every song is going to be different. I want to be a different guitar player for every song. I'm not going to make this song like you know, it's a math core. Every song has got to sound math core, you know, or all blues or all this or all that. I said, no, I'm going to be the one who changes. Every song is going to be different. And we're going to invite these musicians in that love that too. And I'm going to be asking them, you are that kind of a bass player on song number six, but on song number seven, I want you to be this kind of a bass player. And everyone, once we got together, Chris Chaney, uh, uh, and then uh, obviously Kenny Aronoff, uh, my friend Eric Kodio, uh playing keyboards and editing with us. Everyone got in that spirit as well as Jim Scott. And it was so much fun every day when we would start a new song that it would be totally fresh. New guitars, new amps, uh, you know, new drum kit, new, new attitude and everything. And this helped everybody feel uh, that the song was, as you said, like a whole world, like a little movie that was a whole new place to go to. Um, and you know, some songs required just having no conception of the rest of the record. Like a song like Teardrops, it just everybody needed to really think about uh, the the meaning of the song and just forget about the album and just think about the song, and and no demonstrations of technique or anything like that. You know what I mean? Just like right. the song. And uh, so there were there were just every moment towards the end of the day when we knew we had to take. They were great moments because everyone realized they had they'd done the right thing. They did something new. They were happy what with their contribution. And I, and I was overjoyed, of course, because I, I was hearing my musical visions just come to life for the first time, you know. And uh, and Jim's mixing. I mean, yes, 
nuggets, beautiful little gems all over the place. Yes. He just, ah, so great. Yeah. And you play differently when you start to hear that take shape in the studio. Cause you know, when, uh, these days, the way that we record digital, you think, um, different than the old days with, with the tape, you know, right. Um, where you really didn't know where mixing was going to take the song, but you kind of mix as you go in the digital world. And so it's, you start to react to it, you know, and you go, wow, I, I could use a Princeton for that track over there and we could use the 5150 over there and, there, and it can actually work, you know, right. whereas normally you would bring the two to the same session. You know what I mean? Right. But uh, it, it, the, the way that Jim had everything mixed and how he would layer things just, it, it made you appreciate uh, the, the wide open stereo mix and, and, Every time that you don't duplicate something, it gives you rhythmic freedom. And everybody stayed clear of the kick drum. And, you know, it was just like sure. it suddenly became uh, a kind of mix where every time you hear it, you could focus in on some other part of somebody's instrument, really aspect of the performance. And it's very different from mixing in the ensemble field, you know, where everyone has to play the same part perfectly right right <laughs> and it, then the mix becomes kind of flat it's it's impressive and it has its it's it's uh pluses but it's different it's a different animal altogether that well, was the longest explanation ever i loved it gonna, i loved it editing that. <laughs> that was perfect well well done it's an excellent record i encourage everybody out there to to take and eat of the shapeshifter well that yeah. sounds a little weird but you know what it's—it's mean. it's actually shape shifting, by the way. Oh, I'm sorry about that. I, 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 my kids are always talking about paranormal activity, so I automatically. <laughs> yeah, I, ju I just checked. It is. <laughs> you know what? I would re be remiss if I did not, uh, as a, uh, as kind of a deep purple fanatic, to just ask you. Uh, how was that? <laughs> <laughs> that was, wow. Okay, so really quick. I got a call from my manager at the end of 93. I just come back from touring, and he said, I got this crazy call. How would you like to replace Richie Blackmore in Deep Purple? And I went, are you crazy? You know, click. Right. You know, Richie, I was a huge fan of Richie Blackmore, and I knew, you know, my good friend Steve Vai always told me, oh, man, if you if you can avoid replacing somebody famous, do it. Because, yeah, it's like the hardest job ever, you know, following somebody. Uh, and uh, so I'm sitting there like 25 minutes goes by and I call him back. I said, did you did you tell him already? I said, no. And he goes, no, I was waiting to call me back. And, of course, I changed my mind because I thought, OK, I, I can never replace Richie Blackmore. But I had to like work through that you know right and i thought but i could actually be in a room with deep purple and and sit there i could trade licks with john lord it's like how could i say no you know so uh i said yes you know and i and then i i'm on the phone with the roger glover and he's being really nice and he says i will just send you these two cassettes of the last show in dusseldorf or something and and just learn that, and we'll see you in like six days in Tokyo, you know? And I'm like, okay, I can do this, right? And I get these tapes, and half of them don't have any guitar on it, because, you know, Richie used to leave the right. gig. <laughs> so, so I'm just, I'm, I'm wondering what's going on. So I get to the first rehearsal. We have one rehearsal before, uh, before playing at Budokan. And, uh, I say, you know, before we start, guys, I did notice that half of the live show didn't have any guitar on it. Do you want me to, like, <laughs> should I fill in or do you want me to just hang out? And they're all like, oh, no, that's sorry, Joe. That's Richie, you know. No, just play whatever you want. You can do whatever you want, you know. And so I just, you know, I tried to do my best, like, not totally copying Richie, but I just wanted to respect the parts, you know. Sure. And, uh, it, you know, they sounded in this room that was really dry rehearsal room, it was like I had walked into Machine Head and I was there. 
the only problem was there was like Joe. It, uh, why is Joe playing guitar? I want to hear like Richie playing. So, but I got through the whole set, and they were very happy. And they said, you know, you can really, you don't have to play like Richie at all. You can kind of do whatever you want. So, you know, for the next six months, it was really super fun. It was learn. What would you, an explosion of of learning everything every night from the way that these musicians uh, made music for people. It was really amazing because, you know, it's not just your your it's not just a gig. These this band is legendary and they've been playing for their fans for decades, and when they hit the stage, they connected with them. I was just kind of like there celebrating with the audience, you know. And there was no everybody knew I was not going to be Richie. And they kind of had to get over that. <laughs> right. And they wanted Richie, but I wasn't Richie, right? So I just figured I'm going to celebrate Purple with them. But to watch them deliver every night, I, I was so impressed. I, it really was moving to watch them give everything they had every night. They, it, it was great. And, and uh, yeah, grooving with Ian Pace. Oh, my God. What a swinging drummer. Right. Right. Absolutely. I mean, you, it's like teeny grain of rushing in your playing. He will show you how far ahead you are <laughs> because it's like so back there. He's so swinging. You know what I right. mean? There's so much like 50 swing in his drumming. And then once you and you can just like I used to stand like on the drum riser during the, the sound check and just like marvel at how beautiful his kit sounded. The way right. that he would manage the sound of his kit, the volume of, you know, the drums are complex. Uh, as you know, from your son, he's a great drummer. And, and I'm sure you're sitting so close to him. You can hear him having to manage everything that he hits. Right. It's, it's not an easy job. And to still to project beautiful rhythm to the audience. It's just, wow. And now, now, how I'm always curious as like the stage volume in a gig like that, especially that era of band, was were you surprised at how loud that you played with them as opposed to your own thing, or was it, or were were you not surprised? It was just kind of business as usual. My tech was surprised. Yeah, Mike Manning, my tech said, uh, he goes, "Hey Joe, I uh, noticed you're up at about one fourteen. That's like you know," and he loved it. He just like he just like yeah, finally, because for years. We used to go out and calibrate the marshals to 104. I'd figured out that I could like successfully play Flying in a Blue Dream, get all the right harmonics every night, stand here, stand there, you know, get your third, your fifth, your major seventh, your primary. But if you if using that little orange distortion box above 105, there'd be problems. You'd get the wrong notes feeding back, right? Ah, interesting. So but and this setup was much simpler. Uh, I just had my, my chrome guitar. I had the DS1. Uh, um, I had a wah-wah pedal and a play pedal, and that wouldn't use any other effects, and it was all old school. So we just turned. Behind me were all of Richie's cabinets, which were all dummies, but it was a wall of white Marshall cabs. It was very impressive to stand in front of, you know, especially wearing the black T-shirt, you know. Yes, and, of course. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yes, I, I did. I just turned up really loud because everybody was really loud. John Lord was really loud, you know, yeah. and uh, but beautiful sounding, you know. And, you know, John was a trained actor. So when he took the stage, man, did he command the stage. When he did a solo, every night when he walked off stage, he was completely drenched in sweat. He he never leaned back on a gig. You know what I mean? He just right. gave a hundred percent every single night, and he really projected to the audience. And he was really playing for the people that he loved his right. audience. You know, and I mean, I can go on and on about how every every guy in that band was really amazing. I'll tell you the one last funny story is that first gig, I get through the whole gig and we haven't played Smoke on the Water yet. And we get to the gig, we I mean we get to the end of the gig and I realize you know, like I did this. I, I'm talking to myself, standing on the stage with Deep Purple, and I must have been, I don't know how many seconds go by, but I'm going, You you did it, you got through it. The, the band didn't have to stop and look at you like, Hey Joe, what are you doing? Right. 
And and I'm going, and now I am going to play Smoke on the Water with V purple, you know. And all of a sudden I realize like and 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 uh, you know, Ian Gillen's next to me. He goes, Hey Joe, anytime you're ready. <laughs> and it was like, oh, Damn, how long have I been standing there in front of thousands of people? Like, Making it wait for it. Anyway, good memory. That's fantastic. That's a fantastic tale, the perps. I think, you know, one of the funny things, I, I think I heard Steve Morris say one time that Ian Gillen is the kind of guy that'll bite the head off a bat whether anybody else is in the room or not. <laughs> <laughs> yes I've never seen him do it but I know he's, he's doing it right now <laughs> well listen my friend thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us you're a legend and uh, stay safe out there I look forward to hopefully seeing you in person sooner than later once this pestilence has passed yes, yes. Let, I am going to drown it out right now with <laughs> I don't even know if I have a sound. Do I have a sound? No. See, I don't even have a sound anymore because the amp has turned itself off for some <laughs> reason. Oh, I know why. Because that's why. Thank you and good night. Where's smoke on the water? <laughs> well, you know, yeah, YouTube could shut you down right away. Very expensive. That was royalty free, by the way. Excellent. All right, my friend. Thanks again. Have a good one. Take care, and we'll hopefully see you soon. Yes. Thank you, Greg. Nice to talk to you. Bye. Pleasure. Have a good one. Bye bye.